Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 3, Bait and Switch. I'm sorry, Arthur, truly I am. I really thought it would be you. Oh, don't mention it. I mean, I hoped it would be me, but I never actually thought. It's all right. It's all right, Stan. You'll do a fine job, I'm certain of it. And at least it's not going to be that swine Hurley. Eddie? Eddie's all right. You just have to get to know him. I try not to speak to the bastard at all. You know he beats Wren. Well, I'm sure I've never seen anything to suggest that. And anyway, it's not really any of our business, is it? You're going to have to pay more attention to the company's welfare, you know, now that you're number one. Eddie's not like that. Yes, well, you always think the best of people. You always have. And that's why you will be a popular and successful number one. And I wish you all the very best. Thank you, Arthur. That's very gracious. We were sitting together, Stan and me, in the Carnot boxcar on the second leg of our journey to Philadelphia. I'd had a sleepless night in Chicago getting over the disappointment of not being promoted to lead the company, but if I had to miss out to anyone, I was glad it was Stan, probably my best friend in the world. And deep down, I would probably admit that he was better equipped to play the drunk the way Chaplin played it than I was. In fact, his impersonation of Charlie was so perfect that I doubted anyone would be able to tell the difference. Stan leaned over and put his hand on my knee. I know it was your dream, he said. Well, the extra money would have come in handy, I'll not deny that, I said. And I was planning to give Tilly a job once we got to Seattle. Really? What about the baby? Well, the baby would have come right along. Stan grimaced dubiously. Really? A baby in the boxcar? We could have worked him into the sketch somehow. Hmm, he frowned. Well, listen, I'll talk it over with Alf, see what can be done. Thanks, Stan, I appreciate that. I love Tilly, you know that. It'd be marvellous to have her back. Outside the boxcar's steamed-up window, a wintry sun popped out between two clouds, and I suddenly had the feeling that things were going to work out just fine. Charlie was gone, out of our lives forever, and in just a few short weeks the little Dando family would be reunited. On an impulse, I suddenly climbed up onto the seat. "'Hey, everyone!' I shouted, bringing the card game, the knitting circle, and various reading and letter-writing to a halt. Three cheers for our new number one. Hip hip! The cheers rang out for young Stan, who beamed and blushed almost as red as his hair. Most of our colleagues, it seemed, were as relieved as Stan and I both were to be free of Chaplin's arrogance and egotism, to feel like a proper company once more, rather than merely a support system for the self-styled genius. In fact, there were big smiles everywhere you looked, with one exception. Hurley was sitting stone-faced, arms folded, glowering at us all as we cheered. It was going to take him a little longer to get over his personal disappointment, evidently. "'Come on, Eddie!' I called out. "'Give us a grin!' And if looks could have killed, well, this story would be ending right here. We were to play at the Nixon Theatre in Philadelphia for a couple of weeks. It was a fill-in booking, tiding us over until we began our next tour on the Sullivan and Considine time. 
That was how vaudeville turns referred to working on the various circuits, by the way. You might be on the Orpheum time, or the Pantages time, or, as here in Philly, on the Nixon-Nerdlinger time. The more provincial circuits of modest theatres based around one particular city or state would be small time, while breaking into the 2,000-seaters or onto Broadway, well, now that would be hitting the big time. When we'd stayed in Philly before, it had been just a few minutes' walk from Broad Street Station, so we were surprised to see Alf hustling to organise some cabs for us, and to find ourselves riding north for block after block away from the theatre. Eventually, we arrived at a boarding house on 20th Street, tired, cold, and not really paying a lot of attention to our surroundings. So the following morning, when I threw open the curtains of the bay window in the room I was sharing with Freddy, I was interested to discover that across the street there was a large, flat expanse of open ground covered in a pristine layer of crisp white snow, and to the left, what looked like a red terracotta church of a rather fancy design with arches and a tower with a cupola on top. I asked our landlord, an Irish fellow named Flanagan, about this when I made my way down for breakfast. "'Oh, yes,' he said. "'It's a cathedral, show it ish.' "'Really?' I said, raising a sly snigger from my colleagues with a discreet pantomime of wiping spittle from my face. "'A cathedral to baseball. It's the home of the Philadelphia Athletics, winners of the American League pennant and the World Series just last year.' "'Baseball, eh? That's right. And we're going to win it all again this year, just over the road there in Scheib Park.' By this time I was so disoriented by his Philly shash that I didn't quite follow what he was saying. "'Scheib Park!' No, not Scheib. 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 Yes, with an Esh. S-H-I-B-E. I see. I mean, I see. When the season starts, the very best view is from our upstairs windows, and we can charge folks a couple of bucks to shit on the roof. The breakfast room erupted into spluttering all round, Bert Williams in particular was struggling to contain his distinctive sibilant giggle. But our host continued, oblivious. Yes, people shit on the roofs all along the street. We put bleachers up there, wooden bleachers, especially for them all to shit on. Well, in my experience, there's nothing a travelling comedy troupe likes more than a running joke, and that one kept us all chuckling away happily on the drive over to the Nixon for the band call. The merriment had just died down a little when Freddy suddenly said, Well, I know what I'm having for breakfast tomorrow. A perfect pause, then, Shoshijish! And off we all went again. We were all still in fine form when we tipped up at the Nixon, having ridden alongside the Chinese wall that carried the elevated railway line and cut the city in two, and we made our giggly way along the side alley that led to the stage door. I saw Alf Reeves standing by himself on the sidewalk in front of the theatre, and broke away from the others to see what was holding his attention. His hat was pushed back on his head, and he was scratching his chin and grimacing, seemingly from an unspecified pain. "'What ho, Alf?' I said. "'Everything all right?' For answer... Alf merely nodded at the bills posted on the theatre frontage. There, in letters you could have read from a couple of blocks away, I saw this. Nixon Vaudeville presents Charlie Chaplin's London Comedians. Ah. I was afraid something like this might happen, Alf muttered grimly. The governor's not going to like that, I said. He'll blow a blinking gasket. But at least he's back in London. These people are here, and they're expecting to see Charlie Bloody Chaplin. What are you going to do? Alf clapped me on the shoulder and said, Arthur, my friend, I just don't know. And with that, the two of us went inside. 
For the last three years, the Carnot Company had been touring the States with Charlie Chaplin as the lead comic, and more and more the local newspapers and the theatre managers were building him up as the draw, the main attraction. Chaplin's name had been getting bigger and bigger, while Carnot's was getting smaller and smaller. This, though, was the very first occasion that the name Fred Carnot had disappeared altogether, and ironically it was to publicise the very first occasion we were to perform without Charlie Chaplin altogether. On our previous visits to the Nixon, the manager there, a red-faced fellow by the name of Linnigan, had been a real Chaplin enthusiast, so it was with some trepidation that Alf steeled himself for the conversation he needed to have about the posters outside. I followed him into the offices, where he was greeted by a lady receptionist. "'Mr Reeves, nice to see you again.' "'Good morning, Myrtle, isn't it?' Alf said with a friendly smile. "'Could I have a word with Mr Linnigan?' "'Oh, he doesn't work here any more,' Myrtle said. "'Didn't you hear? He has the new palace at Yonkers now.' "'But he has told me all about you,' another voice cut in. Alf and I turned and saw a dapper little chap in a three-piece pinstripe fiddling a watch on a chain out of the pocket of his waistcoat. "'I am George Wilbraham, the new manager of the Nixon, and I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to your visit.' Alf introduced himself, and me, and we exchanged warm handshakes with this sunbeam. "'Oh, yes, my predecessor never stopped talking about Mr. Charlie Chaplin,' Wilbraham went on. "'Charlie Chaplin and his marvellous troop,' he added with a courteous nod in my direction, and then checked his pocket watch again. He looked like he should be in charge of a railway station, not a theatre. "'That's nice,' Alf said, with a barely noticeable wince. "'I can't wait to see him for myself,' Wilbraham burbled. "'In fact, I'm highly tempted to sit in on your band call right now, "'and I never do that, do I, Myrtle?' "'No, Mr. Wilbraham.' "'An electric light bulb seemed to click on in Alf's eye just then. "'Pardon me, Mr. Wilbraham,' he said, "'but do you mean to tell me that you have never seen Charlie Chaplin?' "'Never seen, never met, but mustard keen to do so,' Wilbraham cried. "'Well, then.' "'Let us go to the man-call,' Alf said brightly. "'After you, sir.' Wilbraham checked his watch one more time, and then headed for the stairs that led to the stage. I grabbed Reeves by the arm. "'Alf!' I hissed, but he hushed me, and followed our host. "'Oh, yes, there has been great excitement, great excitement!' the dapper little theatre manager cried over his shoulder. "'I'm sure there has,' Alf called back. "'He's been making quite a name for himself, our boy!' Up on the stage, the company were waiting. One enterprising soul had found a stove with a kettle on it, and had brewed a big pot of tea, and most were indulging in either a late supplementary breakfast or early elevenses, depending on your point of view. "'This is Mr. Wilbraham, the theatre manager,' Alf said, beckoning people to gather round. "'And this,' Alf guided Stan Jefferson into the centre of the circle that was forming, "'is our number one comic, Mr. Charlie Chaplin.' Stan was already extending his hand halfway to Mr. Wilbraham in greeting when he clocked Alf's audible wink, and his face was a picture. His eyebrows shot up, and there was a tight grimace of pain as Alf gripped his shoulder tightly before he gathered himself. "'Pleased to make your acquaintance, I'm sure,' he said, through gritted teeth. "'The pleasure is all mine, Mr. Chaplin, or may I call you Charlie?' "'Please,' Stan winced ever so slightly. "'Please do.' "'Well, don't let me hold you up. You have magic to concoct. Stardust to sprinkle. Welcome, everyone!' Wilbraham checked his pocket watch again, and then scuttled happily back to his office. Everyone was speechless for a moment, as Alf offered us a sheepish grin, and mopped his brow with a large handkerchief. Next to him, Edgar Hurley was using a sleeve to wipe tea from his tie, where he had spluttered it involuntarily a few moments earlier. "'You surely don't think that's going to hold for long?' he scoffed. "'No?' 
Alf said. I feel like we've had our head cut off, and I've stuck a sticking plaster over the neck hole. But maybe it will buy me some time to work out what to do next. The show we were performing, A Night in an English Music Hall, was classic Carno, probably his masterpiece. He'd devised it a decade or so earlier, and it had been touring ever since in the mother country under its home title, which was Mumming Birds. The idea was a simple one, a show within a show, a musical bill within a musical bill, if you will. A pair of boxes were set on either side of the stage and populated with cast members pretending to be part of the audience, while the rest of us took it in turns to present turns of excruciating awfulness for them to barrack. The star part, the one Chaplin had made his own, was known as the inebriated swell, or the drunk for short. He would arrive late, dressed to the nines and one over the eight, popping up noisily in one of the lower boxes from which he would then tumble out onto the stage while trying to hang up his coat. The numbers man would help scoop him back into his seat and from then on the swell would interrupt, argue, join in, fight and generally disrupt proceedings to great comic effect. Now Stan had been understudying Charlie as the swell for the whole time we'd been in the States but he'd only got a run-out in the role in front of a real-life flesh-and-blood audience on one occasion, and had carried it off so well that Charlie had made damn sure not to be ill and let him have another crack at it. The stress of now having to impersonate Chaplin on stage and off only added to the pressure, so it was a nervous Stan who readied himself in front of the dressing-room mirror. We all tried to rally round with encouraging banter, but it was an impromptu knockabout crosstalk routine by George and Emily Seaman that really eased the tension. It went something like this. Emily, I say, have you heard? It's terribly sad. George, what is, my dear? Emily, that fellow Flanagan at our boarding house is unable to keep a dog. George, unable to keep a dog? And why is that, pray? Emily, imagine him, trying to train the poor thing. Shit, Rover, shit! Oh, no, not again! Once our SIG music had played, and the curtain went up for a night in an English music hall, though, we were all a little on edge. Stan was a popular lad, and everyone was hoping he'd pull it off. Well, with the possible exception of Edgar Hurley. From the instant Stan first entered as the swell, however, we knew we were in for quite an evening. He barrelled into the stage right lower box, tumbled over his chair, righted it, and started wrestling his way out of his coat, and if you didn't absolutely know it was him, you'd have sworn it was Chaplin himself. Then he made to hang up his coat, missed the peg, and swung over the edge of the box, somehow managing to get his feet even higher than his head had been, and as he sprawled onto the stage chin first, we knew, each of us, that Charlie had never got quite such a big laugh as the tidal wave that now broke over us. The place was in total uproar. We were going to be all right. At the end of the evening, we all repaired to the Irish bar around the corner. There was always an Irish bar around the corner somehow. It was amazing there was anyone left in Ireland at all. Alf stood the company a round of drinks, and the backslapping began in earnest. Honestly, Stan... Hearty old Charlie Griffith said, offering a toast to our number one. I doubt if even the governor himself has ever seen his sketch done better. Much as I try my best to avoid the old swine as far as I can, I truly wish he'd been here to witness it. To Stan! Mr Wilbraham popped in to pay a brief homage just then, which prompted Alf to suddenly propose a new toast. To Charlie, he cried, which covered old Charlie Griffiths in blushing confusion for a moment. Fortunately, the theatre manager didn't stay long before glancing at his pocket watch and scurrying away again, and then in the small hours, Freddy got his hands on an early edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer, whose reviewer had written this glorious phrase, Charlie Chaplin was never better. This took the mirth to a new level, but after a while I noticed that Stan was coming down and was actually beginning to look a little melancholy. I put my arm around his shoulder. Cheer up, mate, I said. You were a marvel. 
Thanks, Arthur, Stan said, but he didn't crack a smile. What's up? Tell your Uncle Arthur. Oh, I don't know. I was so thrilled to become the number one, I thought it would be the start of something. But I still feel like I'm Charlie's understudy. More than ever, in fact, seeing as he isn't even here. Across the table, Edgar Hurley was in a sour mood. Drinking never seemed to cheer him up. And you think I feel, he growled. I am the senior man. I should be number one. Wren, his lovely wife, rolled her dark eyes at me. Oh, let it go, Ed, for God's sake, she said. I got the sense that she'd had quite an earful of this kind of talk lately. Hurley pressed on, jabbing his finger hard into his own chest. I should be the number one, but instead here I am playing second fiddle to the bloody understudy. Third, I said. What's that? Third fiddle. You're playing third fiddle to the bloody understudy. I think you'll find that I'm the next cab off the rank. What? What do you mean? Hurley spluttered, beginning to go a satisfying purple colour. I decided to let him stew on that and went to get more drinks from the bar. There I found myself standing next to Alf Reeves, who was leaning on the bar, pressing two fingers into his forehead, as if to ease a persistent headache. "'Well, Alf,' I said, "'looks like we got away with it, eh?' "'Hm,' he groaned. "'Maybe. Maybe. But for how much longer?' <laughs> Chapter 4. Bang to Rights Alf was right, of course. He'd backed us into a corner good and proper, passing Stan off as Charlie. However, if we could just make it through this fortnight at the Nixon without being rumbled, then hopefully we could embark on our Sullivan and Considine tour with Stan installed as the leader of the company in his own right. And even though Stan had blanched somewhat at the prospect of adding a baby to the company, I was sure I'd be able to talk him round. It slowly began to dawn on me that there'd be responsibilities, cares, worries and duties settling on my not especially mature shoulders once Tilly and little Arthur joined us in the boxcar. In which case, not being number one, with all the extra pressures that went with that, might even turn out to be a positive boon. We played a night in an English musical to great acclaim for the rest of that first week. The reviews were as good as we'd ever seen, and we were enjoying ourselves too. Stan was a much more generous leading comic than Charlie had been. When Charlie was in charge, everything was about him, directing focus onto his intricate and perfectly observed genius. 
Stan just wanted the show to get laughs, and he didn't much care who got them, so we suddenly had a licence to busk and embellish that we hadn't had before, and we felt like comedians again after months of mere spear-carrying. At the start of the second week, I came across Alf standing in front of the theatre, where the bills now read, Fred Carno's London Comedians. It's a step in the right direction, Alf said, although there was still a healthy-sized banner beneath that that read, featuring the celebrated comic Charlie Chaplin, which made us feel like we were short-changing Philadelphia and were about to be caught out. On the Tuesday of the second week, a group of us were standing around enjoying a convivial smoke. Freddy, Charlie Griffiths, myself and Alf were casually shooting the breeze when we heard shouting on the stairs. Mr Reeves! Mr Reeves! Wilbraham, the theatre manager, was bustling towards us, brandishing a freshly minted copy of Variety, the gossip rag of the entertainment industry. Explain this, sir, if you can, he cried, slapping the paper into Alf's chest. While Alf read, Wilbraham breathlessly enlightened the rest of us. It says that Mr Charlie Chaplin, the celebrated vaudeville comedian, has started work in Los Angeles, making funny flickers for Max Sennett. How is that possible when he's topping the bill here at the Nixon? Is he able to be in two places at once? You have played me for a fool, sir, and I demand satisfaction. The man was quite worked up, his eyes beadily darting around looking for Charlie, which is to say, looking for Stan, but I could hardly credit that he wanted a fight, not with a brawny son of toil like Alf Reeves. You're suggesting what? A duel? I asked. What? No, no! Wilbraham blustered, backing away a step or two. You Englishmen! I demand a satisfactory explanation, that's what I mean. Come on, sir, what have you to say? Fortunately, his expostulations had given Alf a moment to think, and he calmly handed the folded copy of Variety back to its owner. Yes, it's true, Charlie has agreed to make flickers, but not until later in the year, that's all this means. You should count yourself very fortunate, Mr Wilbraham, to have him gracing your theatre on what is his vaudeville swan song. Well, uh, oh, really? Charlie G, Freddy and I merely pushed ourselves away from the wall we'd been leaning against, and that was enough to startle that pocket watch out of his waistcoat, and the man himself backed down the stairs to his office. Christ, Alf muttered as Wilbraham disappeared. You should be on the stage, Alf, not behind it, Freddy grinned. We live to fight another day, I said. As it turned out, though, another day was about all we had before the wheels came off altogether. <laughs> We were back in the Irish bar after the following night's show, celebrating more than a little, for it had been another good one, with Stan really hitting his stride. Suddenly I was aware of a gentle cough at my shoulder, and a figure had seemingly ghosted alongside without my even noticing he was there. I turned, and there was my friend Mr Jobson, the tall Englishman who served as butler and general factotum to John W. Considine, the co-owner of the Sullivan and Considine circuit of vaudeville theatres, and consequently our boss. "'Well, good evening,' I cried, getting to my feet. "'And nice to see you again. "'You're with Mr Considine, I take it?' "'Yes, indeed,' Jobson replied. "'He's sitting in the lounge, and would very much like you to join him, "'along with Mr Reeves and Mr Jefferson.' "'Why, it would be our pleasure, wouldn't it, lads?' I said jovially, "'although I rather doubted that it would be. "'Lead on!' "'Alf and Stan slipped out of the booth where they were sitting, "'and followed Jobson and myself through to the adjoining room, "'all of us nervously fingering our collars.' There, sitting at a table by himself with a face like thunder and his fists clenching and unclenching slowly, was John W. himself. He was a colourful character, Considine, no two ways about it, a big square block of a head on him, which he liked to top off with a large cowboy hat of a type known as the Boss of the Plains. He'd given one to Freddie K. Jr., who wore it all the time. 
Considine had been desperate for Carno to hang on to Charlie Chaplin, as he needed a big draw to keep his whole enterprise going, so the little man's departure had been a huge blow. He liked us, though, me and Stan, because we'd done him a good turn back in 1912, helped him put one over on his big rival, a pushy fellow called Alexander Pantages, who styled himself King Greek. Something like that forms a bond, let me tell you, but even so, Considine was clearly not a happy man. "'Hello, Mr. Considine,' I said, with my most charming smile. "'What a very pleasant surprise!' Considine's gaze flicked up over my shoulder, and he frowned. Sensing interesting developments in the offing, Edgar Hurley was trying to attach himself to the group, but Considine fixed him with a glare before he could take a seat. "'Who's this?' he growled. "'This is Ed Hurley,' Alf said. "'One of the troop, you know.' "'Nice to meet you, Ed,' Considine said, in a tone that suggested he wasn't convinced about that either way. "'Now run along. There's a good chap.' Hurley flushed and made himself scarce. The three of us, me, Alf and Stan, then sat down opposite the burly entrepreneur like boys about to get a thrashing from an angry headmaster. Alf coughed. "'Charlie's uh, gone back to the boarding house. He was feeling a little under the weather,' he said. "'He'll be sorry to have missed you.' "'Cut it out,' Considine barked. "'That sort of horseshit might work on that Rube Wilbraham, but I know Stan here. Recognised him right away. So what are you trying to pull?' "'Pull, Mr. Considine?' Alf gulped. "'I know it says Charlie Chaplin out front, and I also know that Charlie Chaplin is in Los Angeles. God knows I tried hard enough to get him to stay with you fellas. So you tell me, what are you trying to pull?' Uh, "'The fact is, um, well, the fact is,' Alf said. He was drowning, and so I waded in to fish him out. "'What Alf is trying to say, Mr. Considine, is that when we got here, the folks at the Nixon had got it into their heads that Charlie was coming. They'd already done all the publicity and everything, so we decided that just for this two weeks, it wouldn't hurt to let Stan here pretend to be him. But when we start working for you, we'll be the Fred Carno Company, straight up and proud, and Stan will be the number one. And you saw, didn't you, tonight, that he's going to be a smash?' "'True enough,' Considine admitted. "'You were terrific, boy, and, and if it were up to me—' I didn't like the sound of that, and by the look of him neither did Stan, who had started picking at the grain of the tabletop with his fingernails. "'Listen, fellas,' Considine went on, "'this is how it is. I've just been in New York meeting with Marcus Lowe, trying to get him to pick up Big Tim Sullivan's half of the business. It'd be a sweet deal, too, because together we'd have big houses from east coast to west, and guaranteed work all year round for our favoured artistes.' He waved a meaty paw in our direction to let us know that we were included in that group. "'Is Logan a go for it?' I asked. "'I don't know,' Considine grimaced, shaking his big square head slowly. "'I just don't know. Maybe. In the meantime, I need to keep everyone happy or else the whole damn thing is going to collapse around my ears like a house of cards. You get me?' So when my theatre managers are all wiring me, all of them, several times a day, asking me, is Charlie at Keystone? And if so, how come he's getting rave reviews in Philly? And does this mean he's coming or not? Then you give me a problem, which is why I'm here now. Considine reached into his jacket pocket and brought out a fistful of beige-coloured paper. I should have taken a room at the Western Union office, not the Liberty Hotel, he growled. What I did was this. I wired all my theatre buses and told them that Stan was taking over, that he was the one getting the raves here in Philly, that he was fantastic. Thanks, Mr. Considine, Stan said with a big grin on his face. But the thing is this, you see, they want a name, all of them. They've been spoiled this last couple of years with the attention old Charlie's got, and they reckon it's their due. They know you boys from your previous go-rounds. They know Stan's the understudy, and they feel... 
Well, I know it's not fair, not right, but they feel cheated. Now, it's unfortunate, but just now I need to keep all these guys with me. The Greek is sniffing around some of my prime properties, and long story short, I need to listen to them. I'm sorry, son, really I am, but... He ended with a helpless shrug of apology. I understand, Stan said, and I put a consoling hand on his shoulder. I'll wire Carno, Alf said, see who we can get. Already done it. Considine said, shuffling the telegrams in his hand, looking for one in particular. I said that we needed a new star name for the show, and he replied, Wait, Alf said, let me guess. Something like, Carno name sells tickets? Pretty much, Considine said. Here we are. Star not important. Stop. Carno biggest name of all. Stop. We laughed. I could just imagine the governor dictating that to someone back at the fun factory, feel the arrogance oozing out from between the lines. I could have told you. Alf said. So what now? Well, I wired again, right back, saying that I was going to have to insist on a new star comic as soon as possible, or else bookings would be cancelled. Alf inhaled sharply, whistling through his teeth, and Stan looked alarmed. We all knew how well Carner was likely to have taken to that approach. And he replied, Alf said tentatively, already half flinching as though he was about to get a slap. He did, thank the Lord, Considine said. Here, look. Dan Rayner, arriving Chicago, 19th. Stop. Dan Rayner, I said. A glance at Alf and Stan told me that they too were drawing a blank, but then we had been away from England for quite a while. That's right, Considine said. It's a relief, I'll tell you that. So I'll let all my bosses know that they're to promote the living hell out of this Dan Rayner, the bright new comic talent from London, and we're all still on. Excellent. Let's drink to it, shall we? Jobson? Considine beckoned to his gentleman's gentleman, who was lurking with consummate discretion over by the hat stand, while Alf, Stan, and I took the opportunity to shrug furiously at one another. So, we were to have a new number one, Dan Rayner. And I'm sure we'd have been a lot more confident about the future if any of us had ever heard of him. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.